Lord, and um, I thank you that uh, this weekend provides an opportunity for us to uh, gather together to, and learn and pray, and come to you, to look to you for guidance, to look to you, um, really asking you what is... Uh, what is your plan for our life? What is your plan for the nations? What, what is your agenda, Lord, and how can we fit into it? Lord, I just pray that uh, during this next 45 minutes that you would just bless our time together, that you would open our hearts to receive your word. Um, Lord, more than anything else, I pray that we would leave this place today just encountering the, the beauty, the majesty, and the sovereignty of, um, of you. Lord, that we would humble ourselves and Submit our lives to you. Lord, we just ask that you would have your way with us. That you would do whatever pleases you with our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, My name's Nathan. Uh, I'm not a medical professional. Uh, I don't really know what I'm doing here, why they asked me to come. Uh, I am very much, I, I am the everyman of this conference. You could be up here, every woman, you know, you could be up here. We could very easily switch places. Um, I'm very thankful that I've been asked to come. And I'm just really, uh, I'm going to share today um, a part of my story and a part of my search for God's will for, for my life and um, what He's been doing and, and what I've learned from uh, just trying to surrender my life to God and hope that that will have application to you and to the medical field and to where you are um, I'll be sharing a lot from, from the Bible, which is always a safe thing to do. Uh, and so I, I do think and hope and pray um, really that, that more than anything that uh, we would all just come to a point of just complete surrender before Jesus Christ. So that's, 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 the, that's the only goal. You know, if we can get to there, we're good. Um, so uh, I, I kind of uh, started this journey... Uh, towards um, towards full time ministry, um, you know, many years ago. I think the first time I kind of had any sense of calling it was when I was in high school. I didn't even know what the word calling meant. I still don't really know what it is or if it's legitimate to use that uh, word. But um, uh, when I was headed, uh, felt like God was kind of leading me to go to seminary. And um, when I was headed towards seminary, I really felt like. Um, what I wanted to do is I, I love to teach. I love to teach God's Word. And so I just kind of pictured myself as, as going on and getting a Master's of, of Divinity and then getting a Ph.D. and going and teaching in a university somewhere. That was kind of that was my dream and aspirations. And when I got to seminary, God kind of radically shifted my thinking. And, and uh, there were a number of things that um, really God brought to light just to, to bring more attention to caring and serving the poor um, and urban missions. And, and so uh, God kind of started to, to redirect my life. And He did that through um, friends, through experiences, through studying His Word, through dreams and visions. I mean, God spoke to me in about... Every way I think God speaks, um, and I and I wrestled with that. I struggled with that uh, a little bit, and I remember uh, going um, back home. I actually went to seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky, just down the road at Asbury, and I would go back home to Memphis and um, during you know spring break during the holidays, and uh, God kind of kept giving me a picture in my mind of this um, park that was in an inner city community where we had had picnics um, with with people in the community where i I had done some work doing home repair in this this little inner city community, and I kept having visions of this 
of this park. And so when I'd go home and I, I would prayer walk around the park and I'd just kind of walk and walk and walk and nothing really happened. I was like, well, that was good. Uh, and I'd go back, um, go back to school and, and, and keep praying. And um, I was at a, I was at a, a music festival called Ichthus. And at Ichthus there, at Ichthus, there are about 17,000 people that come to this little town in Wilmore and, um, and worship, and uh, they'll had, they had these big tents where people would come and speak. And at one of those, um, at, at one of those times, I went and I was just listening to a, to a man from Georgia talking about things that he felt like God was doing in the world today, and how He was calling people in the world today. And one of the things that he talked about, and I and I don't share, like I've not shared this with very many people. I'm sharing it with you today because uh, it's starting to make more sense to me. But he. Um, he shared that, that he felt like God was calling people not only to pastor churches, but to pastor cities. And when he said that, I felt a quickening of the Holy Spirit. I felt like that's what God's calling me to, but I don't understand what that means. And so afterwards, I went and I prayed with him and, and asked for some direction. And he's like, I don't know what that means. God just wanted me to say it. And so it kind of started me on this on this path of pursuing what does it mean to pastor a city, Lord? And what, what does that mean? And, and some of the things I've learned of what it, what it doesn't mean is it's, it's not a position of leadership. It's not anything kind of hierarchical. That God has call, called me to come and to, to love and to serve my city. And, and the other thing is that um, God has given me a deep, deep burden for the city of Memphis. And I call it a prophetic burden. And, and uh, I learned this from, from a friend of mine, John Perkins, who's a, uh, started the CCHF, Christian Community Health Fellowship, and then CCDA. Um, an 81-year-old African-American man from Jackson, Mississippi, who I love and admire and got to spend some time recently talking with. And, and uh, he kind of explained this to me about the, the idea of a prophetic burden. It's, it's that God gives us, and this is, I think it can apply to any of our calling, God gives us a burden that's so deep that we just can't shake it. And it motivates us um, in, into action. It motivates us into action that we have to do something to relieve this burden. We gathered a group of people together um, to fast and to pray. And uh, during that time... Um, you know, if any of you are struggling with this, and I, this is good advice right here, if any of you are struggling to find God's will in your life, if you don't know, ask Rick Donlin, who's sitting up here in front, because he will tell you, right? And so that's what I did. I was uh, struggling. I couldn't, I was like, what's the next step? And Rick Donlin starts feeding me all this material on church planting, okay? I have never in my life wanted to plant a church or start a church or pastor a church or really have much of anything to do with the church. Uh, not that I hated the church or anything. It's just, I just, that's not where I saw my life headed. Okay, I, I liked academia. I liked studying. Um, I didn't like the practical stuff. And, uh, but that's what um, my, my, he, he gave us these tapes. It was like, I don't know, it was like 15 hours worth of, ta- these are literal tapes, not CDs. These are cassette tapes that we uh, my wife forced my wife to listen to on our uh, road trip down to Florida we're going to the beach and we're listening to tapes on church planning I'm boring her to death like you might want to listen to this this may be our future baby and uh, and so we get back and we decide alright that's what we're going to do so uh, how do you plan a church well you invite we just we, we had moved into this inner city community by this time and invited about 10 people to come. We're like, we're just going to try this out for a while. We're going to meet in our home. We're going to see how things go. And in three months, we'll reevaluate. Well, we never stopped to reevaluate. And 
Um, now, almost 10 years later, we have uh, seven house churches meeting in three different inner city communities um, in Memphis and uh, serving the poor, um, using our gifts uh, to, to reinvest our lives in these inner city communities with the hope of seeing God's redemption come to fruition. So God kind of started us off on this path. Um, we got uh, a few years in into it and realized... Um, you know, we started looking at other small community churches that were in our neighborhood, and we realized that all of the resources in that church were being, I mean, all the resources were being sucked into serve the church. So the financial resources uh, in these small inner city churches were going to pay for pastor salaries and buildings, and very little money was being reinvested back into the community or, or being used to do missions. And then we kind of looked even broader at other even even bigger churches and successful churches, and we saw that really, um, at the very best churches, were maybe ten per, taking ten percent of of their tithes and using that to go towards missions. And we're like, this this can't be right. Like there is something seriously flawed with this model of of, of missions and ministry. So we decided that's when we decided, well, we're gonna we're gonna just. We're going to have house churches, and I'm going to find a job, and we're not going to have a building, and we're not going to have any, any paid salary. And so we're going to take all of our money, 100% of our money, and reinvest it into missions and ministry to serve our inner city neighborhood here and to help people get um, to the nations, to places like uh, Afghanistan and Darfur and Somalia and to the hardest places of the earth. That was our idea, okay? And what we found out is, uh, in doing this is that inner city uh, missions and ministry is a great launching pad for going to these hard, hard places. And, and there were several times we had friends of ours who went to China and they said, you know, it's easier for us to go to China than to think about moving into the inner city of Memphis. And it's because the inner city of Memphis was familiar to them. They didn't know what they were getting into when they were going to China. So, they, in a sense, they had uh, greater faith to go into the unknown than to go into the reality, the harsh reality of, of, of what they, they knew in Memphis. Um, but it's, it's great preparation. And, and, and so kind of the rest of this talk is going to be about what we've learned and why is that such good preparation. And, and it's really, there's really just one principle here. That if you learn nothing else, there's one, one principle to learn is um, that God calls us to live by faith and not by fear. Okay? And our culture um, is obsessed with fear. Uh, and our culture teaches us the exact opposite, to make decisions based on fear and not by faith. So uh, here are three questions that you can ask yourself um, to help you know if you are living uh, by faith or by fear. Where do you live and why? Where do you send your children to school and why? And it's actually, those are the only two questions. I thought there were three, but it's only those two. Where do you live and why? And where do you send your children to school and why? Okay. And now, here to relieve this, we all live by fear. That's what we're taught to do. It's, it is a supernatural thing. It is a gift of God to live by faith. And so, um, so I started looking at the scriptures and I started looking... Uh, who are some examples of, of godly men in the Bible who lived by faith and not by fear? And, and let's look at their, 
their call narratives, the stories in the Bible where they were called by God. And so uh, one of the first ones I looked at was uh, the life of Moses. And so, you know, Moses was in Egypt. He was adopted by Pharaoh's family. Um, he committed murder. He killed one of the, uh, a, a, another Egyptian for persecuting one of his fellow Hebrews. And, and uh, a, a warrant was passed for his arrest. And so he, he fleed uh, to Midian. And in Midian, uh, he uh, met a, a very nice family, Jethro, who was a priest, who was a godly man. And he, um, he married uh, Jethro's daughter, Zipporah, and settled into a nice, comfortable life in the suburbs. Right? He's in the suburbs of Egypt, right? All the, the slavery, the persecution, the hardship for his people was happening in Egypt. And so he moved out to the suburbs in Midian and settled down to a, to a nice life out there. And um, I don't think that Moses, you know, I, I reread the passage last night and it doesn't look like Moses was looking for God's calling on his life. All right. He was he seemed to be happy and content uh, shepherding sheep and, as, and, and helping Jethro to take care of his, his sheep. So he's out taking care of the sheep, and lo and behold, there's a burning bush, and um, Moses gets smacked with his calling. God says, you know, Moses, um, I've heard the cries of my people. My people are being persecuted in Egypt, and I'm coming to their aid, and I'm sending you to confront Pharaoh. And, and Moses says, not me. Not me. Who am I, God? And, and God's response to that is, it doesn't matter who you are. It's about who I am. Okay, and I'm going to deliver my people by sending you to confront Pharaoh. And and uh, he Moses comes up with another excuse. He says um, they're not going to believe me that you sent me. And and God says no, they will they will believe you. Go and just and tell them that I sent you and 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 talk to the leaders of Israel and they'll believe you. And he comes up with another excuse. He says, nope, they're still not going to believe me. And so God answers that excuse with this. He says, well, I'm going to give you three miracles to do. Okay, take your staff, throw it on the ground, it'll turn to a snake. Take your hand, put it in your shirt, it'll turn leprous. Take this water, pour it on the ground, it'll turn to blood. When they see these miracles, they will know that I sent you. I don't know, God. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm not equipped for this. I'm not talented. I'm not a good public speaker. God says, I will put my words in your mouth. Don't worry about it. Just go. Mm, no. Send somebody else. And then God gets mad. It says, God's, God burned with anger. Okay? But what he didn't do is he didn't relent. God said, I will send Aaron with you to speak on your behalf, but the two of you are going. Now go. Okay? This is what calling looks like. Alright? This is what calling really looks like. It's not that... um, We shouldn't look at calling uh, from a self-centered perspective of uh, what are the gifts that I have? What's going to give me the most satisfaction? How can I use my gifts to most glorify God? Those things sound good, but when you look at the stories in the Bible, that's not what happens. That's not what God wants. That's not the, the starting point. The starting point for all these stories that we're going to talk about is surrender. Recognizing the sovereignty of God and surrendering to Him and doing whatever He says, regardless of whether you think you're equipped or not, whether, whether or not you think it's a good idea or not. Moses didn't think it was a good idea. Moses didn't think he was equipped. Moses didn't want to go. 
But you know, there's a great story in the Gospels that Jesus tells. He tells this parable. He says um, that, that a man uh, has a vineyard and he, he has two sons. And, to the first, and he tells his two sons, go and work in the vineyard. And the first son says, no, I don't want to work in the vineyard. But later changes his mind and actually goes and does the work. And the second son tells his father, yes, father, I'd be happy to work in your vineyard. But he never does the work. And Jesus asks the question, who, who is the faithful son? And the response is, it's the one who initially said no, but did the work. Okay, so it's okay to struggle with our calling. It's okay to wrestle with God. It's okay not to want to do what He calls us to do. It's okay to initially be afraid. But we can't live by fear. We have to live by faith. And so we have to come to a point of surrender and submission to the sovereignty of God. Second story, this is the guy I probably most identify with in the Bible. It's, it's the story of Gideon. Okay? And Gideon's story is this. The, the people of Israel had rebelled against God and had, had started worshipping false gods. They had um, started worshipping the gods of the Amorites. And uh, God uh, gets angry and passes judgment. Um, and the judgment that he passes is to send the Midianites... Uh, into the land of Israel to pillage the land and to burn the crops. And so a famine uh, takes place in the land. And, um, and, and here's Gideon. The picture, there, there's a picture of Gideon where he's, trying to, uh, he's down in the wine press, in his wine press, hiding because he doesn't want to be seen by the Midianites trying to prepare the wheat. Okay, down in this wine press. And if you know anything about threshing wheat, which I don't really know much about myself, I had to read about it, but you can't thresh wheat in a wine press. Okay, you have to do it out in the open where you can throw the wheat up into the air and, and the wind blows and separates the shaft from the grain and then you go and collect the grain. And so here's, here's Gideon trying to do this impossible task of threshing wheat in a wine press without being out in the open, without the wind as his aid. Okay? And why is he doing that? One, because he's scared to death of the Midianites. And two, because he has a family to feed. He's hungry himself and he's in the midst of a famine. And so in his desperation and in his fear, he's trying to do what he needs to do to take care of his family, but he's doing it out of fear. Right? And in, so then in pops an angel of the Lord. Okay? And looks at Gideon hiding down in his wine press. And what does he say to Gideon? Mighty warrior! I have a job for you. You are going to attack the Midianites and uh, deliver the Israelites from their hand. And Gideon says, What? Me? You don't understand. Israel is the weakest nation on the earth. And my tribe is the weakest nation, the weakest tribe in Israel. And I'm the weakest and I'm from the weakest clan, and I'm the, I'm the weakest man in the weakest clan in the weakest tribe in the weakened, weakest nation on earth. He sees himself literally as the lowest man on earth, the weakest man on earth. And this is who God calls, and God calls a mighty warrior, and calls him to confront the Midianites. And God says, He tells them that, that, that the people have stopped worshiping me. The people have stopped worshiping me. And uh, Gideon goes and he says, um, he says to the angel, he says, wait right here. Um, 
I'm going to go and make an offering. And so he goes and collects some grain and collects, gets a goat and he makes an offering. What's really fascinating about this offering is if you go back and look at the Levitical laws, that Gideon offers God ten times what was required by the law. He gives this abundant offering in the midst of a famine. He gives a grain offering when there is no grain. And so what we see with Gideon is there's this duality that he has. Okay? On one hand, he sees himself as the weakest man. I don't have the gifts. I don't have the ability. I don't have the strength to do what you're calling me to. But on the other hand, man, look at his heart and his passion for God. And his willingness to sacrifice. This, making this abundant offering in worship to God. You see, that's, that's the people that God calls to do His work. It's not gifted speakers or people who are strong or have great charisma. It's people who have a heart and a passion to worship God. And God wants to fan that flame among the nations. And so as you're preparing to take the gospel to the nations, if that's what you're doing, or you're preparing to serve the sick, like what's the best thing that you can do? You can learn to worship God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. And I didn't come up with that. That's what Jesus said. Okay? That's His idea. That's the best thing that we can do to prepare ourselves to do God's work is like Gideon, have a heart for worship. Alright? And the next thing that God does with Gideon is He gives him some steps into ministry. Alright? He starts with a relatively small task. Alright? He doesn't send him immediately to go and invade the hordes of, of, of the, the Midianites. He gives him another task. And the task that he gives him, and you all can look at this in Judges chapter 6 if you want to read it later. But the task he gives him, he says, um, the angel of the Lord says, I want you to confront the sin of your father. Right? For many of us, that, it may be easier to attack the hordes of the Midianites than <laughs> confront the sin of our parents. You know, but he says, I want you to confront the sin that your father has built altars to Baal. And I want you to go and to tear them down. And Gideon, again, like Moses, is afraid. He says, if I do that, the villagers are going to kill me. I don't want to do that, Lord. They're going to kill me. Okay? Is this, you're seeing some themes here? He's wrestling with God. But what, what does Gideon do? He does it. He does it in the middle of the night. He sneaks out at night to do it because he's afraid. But he tears down the altars. And lo and behold, what happens the next morning? What's the first thing that happens? The sun rises and Gideon's, you know, cooking his breakfast. The altars are torn down. You know, he's eating his cereal. Hey, who tore down these altars? Hey, who tore them down? I think it's Gideon. Let's kill him. His, his worst fears are coming true. And here come the villagers. He's like, I don't know. I told you this was going to happen. But but what happens is that his father stands up and you see the repentance of his father. You see the heart of his father turn to Gideon and his his father stands between the villagers and Gideon says, No, you're not going to touch my son. And they don't touch his son. And, And you see repentance and restoration within the family. And that this becomes a launching pad for Gideon. That Gideon learns in this moment what does it mean to live by faith and not by fear. And now he has an experience. He's experienced God's faithfulness to protect him through, through turning his father's heart towards him. Third story. Okay, This is the story of uh, 
story of Isaiah. Okay? And I think that Isaiah's calling is the most um, idealistic. Okay? But because it's the most idealistic, uh, I think it, 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 there, there's something, again, that it, it, it speaks to us in. Um, and so this is what happens with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Um, I hope I'm not boring you too much like, with these stories. They're really meaningful to me. But uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, um, Isaiah has this vision of the glory of God. Okay? He sees the majesty, the beauty, the glory of God enthroned in the temple. And there are all these angelic beings flying around to him, calling out, uh, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And they're worshiping God. And, and Isaiah sees this and his heart breaks and he realizes, he, he realizes his own sinfulness. And he cries out to, to God and he says, God, spare me. And God um, sends an angel. Uh, and, and God is enthroned kind of up on, a, uh, on an area like this. And he sends the angel down to the altar. And he takes a coal from the altar and goes and, and, and the angel takes the coal and he touches Isaiah's lips. And he atones for the sin of Isaiah. And then God says this, who will, Whom shall I send and who will go for me? And we all know Isaiah's response. Isaiah says, Here I am, Lord, send me. And what is amazing to me uh, about this story is that, um, you know, for, for Moses and for Gideon, God tells them what they're going to do, right? And then they have to kind of wrestle through it. For Isaiah, he doesn't get a job description, to say yes or no to, right? God just says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. So what is Isaiah responding to? He's not responding to a job description. He's responding to God himself. He's saying, God, I recognize that you are sovereign and I am not. You are the creator, I am your creation. You are holy, I am sinful. You've just cleansed me and atoned for my sins. I will do whatever you ask of me. And he lays his life down. And I think that that's the position that we've got to take before a sovereign God. God, it doesn't matter where you send me, what you do, if it's a menial task, if it's, the, if it's difficult, if it's going to bring great glory, or if nobody's ever going to know anything about it. Whatever it is, Lord, I'll do it. And you know what the real stinger is? Is like when you see what, what, his, what Isaiah's job description is, it's the worst one in the Bible. He gets the worst job in the Bible. God says, I want you to go and preach to your own people, but they're never going to listen to you, and I'm going to make sure they don't listen to you because I'm going to harden their hearts and I'm going to deafen their ears, and you're going to live a life of a fruitless ministry. And guess what, Isaiah? You know, that you're going to keep preaching and, and, um, and, uh, and, and Isaiah starts to, I think, realize what's happening here. And uh, he asks this one question of God. Oh, Lord, how long must I do this? How long must I do this? And God says, until all of the cities are destroyed, and if there's anything left, we're going to come in and burn that too, until there's complete destruction. It's horrible. You know what? He does it. Isaiah is faithful. He preaches to a hard-hearted nation, to his brothers and sisters, his mom and dad. 
He preaches the Gospel. He preaches about one who is to come. He's going to be born like a child. He's going to re- redeem and save His people. And nobody listens to Him. He, he tells them that, that judgment is coming. The Babylonians are going to come and they're going to wipe things out and to turn from your sins. Repent and turn from your sins. And nobody does it. But He's faithful. There's one point, and this is crazy, guys. This is crazy. If you really read your Bible and you start looking at some of the details, like there's crazy stuff that happens in there. In Isaiah chapter 20, I can't remember if it's 20 or 21, but God asked Isaiah to do this. He says, Isaiah, I want you to take off all your clothes and to walk around Jerusalem for three years naked and barefoot. Is that horrible? Can you imagine? what life would be like naked for three years wandering around Thanksgiving's coming up you know go to Thanksgiving dinner hey mom what are you doing get dressed I can't God told me to be naked you're sick son we gotta see a doctor no mom God told me I had to wander around Jerusalem I can't I don't have time to do that I mean, before long, seriously, I imagine that Isaiah lost his family. I imagine that he lost his friends. His fellow prophets probably thought he was crazy. Three years wandering the streets as a naked homeless man. And you know what's marvelous is that in Isaiah 58, he tells us, in a sense, about his experiences and he talks about what is true, true and authentic worship is not uh, putting on sackcloth and ashes and fasting and making sacrifice. It's, it's this. It's, it's uh, breaking the yoke of oppression. And guess what else it is? Welcoming the homeless, naked, poor man into your house. When Isaiah speaks those words, he's speaking with experiential authority. As a homeless, naked man who wandered through the streets of Israel for three years. And I imagine that no one took pity on him. No one had compassion on him. You know why? Because he was probably labeled as having a mental illness and as being unstable, as being unsafe to allow this homeless, naked man into the lives of our family with our children. We need to protect Israelites. Let's be good Israelites. We need to protect our children from the homeless, naked man. Let's go, let's go serve Isaiah at the soup kitchen. Let's not welcome him into our home because that's dangerous. That's true worship. That's living by faith and not by fear. One more story for you. How did Nathan learn these lessons? Okay, um, My wife and I uh, lived in this little 750 square foot house in the uh, inner city community in Binghampton. And um, I was sitting out on the porch one evening, uh, looking out towards the west, watching the sun come down. And, and in Memphis, we really like Kentucky. There's some really beautiful sunsets. And I was just, there's a gentle breeze in the air. That never happens in Memphis. I mean, it was a really nice night to sit on the porch. And I was just enjoying, just peacefully enjoying the evening. And as I'm enjoying the evening, I watch. I live on, on, a, on a cove, okay? So uh, 
you really have to be working hard to get to my house because you have to come down one dead end street and turn to another dead end street. So, like, we don't have through traffic uh, for where we lived. Okay. Um, and I start seeing just one after another, men and women, like, coming down our street and turning up just two houses down from me and going into uh, a guy's house to live down the street and then coming out, staying in there for about five minutes, coming out, walking out, coming in, walking out, coming in, walking out, one after another, people I've never seen before. I'm like, this, I don't think this is good. And so I, I get out my phone and I call my friend Big Dog. Big Dog uh, grew up on the streets of Memphis, lived as a homeless man, uh, dealt drugs, guns, anything and everything, and had a radical conversion to Jesus Christ. And so Big Dog was my uh, contact. He was, if I needed to know anything about uh, culture, if I needed some street smarts, He's my guy to call. So I call Big Dog and I say, hey, listen, what's going on? This is what I see is happening. Like, what's happening down the street from me? He's like, you got a drug house. Like, that's what I was afraid of. I hung up the phone and went inside and went to bed. (coughs) Next morning, we had a, uh, uh, our leaders in our church were having a um, uh, time to get together and study God's word together. And uh, after that, our friend Chuck don't know this, Chuck, you were part of the story. Uh, Chuck was coming in town to, to speak with, to us. And, um, and so uh, I went uh, into this little room just to pray about how to, how to use Chuck or what we should do for our church. And um, you know, during our, our leadership time, our, our Bible study time, one of my friends was talking about how he had been reading through the prophets and how like, he, he was rereading Ezekiel and all these things that God had been teaching him about Ezekiel. And so I'm sitting there and I'm praying. I'm alone by myself now and I'm praying about... Just missions and what, how, how, God, how can you stir our hearts to missions? And I just felt led to start reading the book of Ezekiel. So I, I open up my Bible and I just start with Ezekiel 1 and I just start reading through. And I get to Ezekiel 3 and there's this amazing passage in Ezekiel 3 where God, again, gives Ezekiel his calling. Imagine that. He says this to Ezekiel. He says, Ezekiel, you are to be a, a watchman. Okay, for the nation of Israel. And that you're, you're to stand and to watch out over the, the spiritual lives of the people of Israel. And this is what he tells Ezekiel. He says, Ezekiel, if you see somebody commit a sin against me and refuse to speak out against it, I am going to hold you responsible. But if you do speak out against it, I'm going to hold that person responsible. And one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to repent and turn to me, in which I will embrace them. Or they will not repent, and then I'm going to pour out my judgment on them. But, Ezekiel, if you don't say anything, their blood is on your hands. And imagine what popped into my head as I read that passage. I've got a drug dealer living on my street that I know is living in sin. God, are you telling me that I have to say something to him? And if not, are you going to hold me responsible for this man's sin? Impossible, God! I am a seminary student. I will be able to figure out a way around this one. Because this is for Israel. This is what the prophets did for Israel, God. This doesn't apply to me in my generation. Surely not. I don't see other pastors doing this craziness that you're talking about here. No way. 
I leave that place. I go to a friend of mine, Tim, who is an electrician who had a, a bad back. He's on dis- disability. And so I'll go to Tim's house uh, about once a week and um, pray with him and read the scriptures. And so I asked Tim, I was like, Tim, you're not going to believe this. Listen to this. I've got a drug dealer in my house. I read this. Uh, not in my house, but on our street. Sorry. <laughs> Tim. Oh, sorry. My wife is not. She's not there. Okay. Now, I have a drug dealer on my street. And um, I think that God, you know, I told him about the passage in Ezekiel. I was like, Tim, God's not really telling me that I need to confront this guy, is he? Oh, yeah, Nathan. He's, that's what he's saying to you, all right? I'm sure of it. And if you want, I'll go with you. We can confront him together. I'm like, Tim, that's okay. Really, man. I appreciate it. Thanks. You're a good friend. I was like, um, would you just pray for me? And... Uh, and so Tim, like Tim just reads the King James Bible and when he prays, he prays in King James English. And so he started saying this prayer. I don't have any idea what he was saying. Uh, but there's one little phrase that stuck out in my mind. And I remember him saying, uh, Heavenly Father, um, send your spirit to light upon Nathan's head. Okay? I don't know what that means. All right, I leave his house and I go back to my office and uh, talk with uh, another friend of mine. Um, his name's Eric. And Eric, if, for, he is bold with the gospel. All right? He is one of the boldest people that I know. And um, so I, I start telling Eric. And Eric, unlike Tim, who's not theologically trained, Eric was. Eric had been to seminary. And so I start going through this with Eric. I tell him the story. Got a drug deal on my street. Here's the passage in Ezekiel. This really doesn't apply to me, does it, Eric? Like, this isn't what God's saying. He doesn't really want me to confront this guy. Oh, yeah, Nathan. He wants to, you to confront this guy. And you know what? If you want, I'll go with you. And we could talk to this guy together. No, thank you, Eric. I don't want any part of this. No, thank you. Well, can I pray for you? Sure. I'll take a prayer. He can pray for me. And as he's praying, I just feel this deep conviction of the Holy Spirit and fear of God. I'm really afraid. Because Ezekiel's words start to become real to me. And I start realizing God's really not messing around on this one. And... um, and I don't want to do this, but I know that I've got to. And I know that if I don't do it right now, I'm, I'm not going to. I will eventually harden my heart to God. I've got to do it now. I've got to be obedient now. And so I start walking out. And in walks this lady. We, had, uh, we work with a... My office was in a, a, a building with a home repair ministry. And um, this lady comes walking in uh, who needed work done on her house. And I talked to her a couple times. And uh, she's this real nice lady. And I say, Marcy, you're not going to believe this. Um, but I'm about to go talk to a drug dealer. What do you think about that? She's like, that is stupid. Don't do that. You're going to get yourself killed. Call the police. They're the ones who are supposed to handle this kind of stuff. I was like, Marcy, you're the first sensible person I've talked to all day. Thank you. But the Holy Spirit is burning within me. I know I've got to go. And so I, I leave the office. I get in my car and I start driving to my house. And my office, from, from the office of the house, it's, it's about three minute drive. Like I, everything I do is like within this little, little bubble. Um, and, and so I'm driving home and again, I just, I'm afraid. And so I just, I'm trying to, to gather up some courage and just start praying. And I just start worshiping God. And I start making up this song. And Tim's words uh, start coming back to my, to, to my mind. And, and um, the drug dealer, I know this guy. His name's Mike. And so I start singing this song. Mike might have a gun. Okay, I'm not a singer. Mike might have a gun. But I got the Holy Spirit sitting on my head. Sitting on my head. Mike might have a gun. But I got the Holy Spirit sitting on my head. Sitting on my head. I'm singing as loud as I can. Driving. 
And I, I, I come up, and I, I come up right next to Mike's house, and I start to slow down, put on the brakes. I'm about to get out. I speed back up, drive into my driveway, run into my house, get down on my knees. I'm like, God, no, 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 no! Don't make me do this! Don't make me do this! Conviction, 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 fear of God, words of Ezekiel, the Bible, like all this stuff is going on. And I get up and I'm like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. Nobody's in the house, I'm just pumping myself up. Let's do it, let's do it. I'm saying this out loud. Let's do it. And uh, I get up, I grab a track um, that we had, we had made up and stuck it in my back pocket. And I walk down the street and I knock on the door and Mike's girlfriend answers. Her name's Tammy. She says, hey Nathan, what can I do for you? I was like, Tammy? Do you have any prayer requests? <laughs> I was so scared. I didn't know what to say. I was freaking out. And she starts telling me her prayer request. And I don't know what she's saying. Because all I'm thinking is like, oh my God, what am I doing? And I stop her. I'm like, Tammy, that's not why I came here. I came here because we've seen people um, walking in and out of your house. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that you're selling drugs out of your house. And I've got to tell you that... Um, you're putting your, yourself in danger and you're putting us in danger and you're putting the kids in danger and you need to stop. <sighs> okay, I did it. And she looks at me and she says, you know what, Nathan, you're right. We haven't been selling drugs, but we have a friend that's been coming over to our house for the last couple of weeks and he's been selling drugs out of our house. And Nathan, I want you to know that just last night we told him that he can't do that anymore. And that he's not allowed to come over to our house to sell drugs. I was like, really? <laughs> I was like, thank you, Tammy. And I turn around, I start, I start to walk off, and here comes Mike. And the first thing that goes through my head is like, oh no. I'm talking to Mike's girlfriend, and he's not around. And what is he going to think? And, what, and it's like, I'm going to have to go through all this again with Mike. And so as Mike's walking up the stairs, I'm like, Mike, let me tell you while I'm here, I was afraid that you were selling drugs out of your house, and that's not a good thing, and it's going to put people at risk. And he's, and he's like, Nathan, it's okay. We had a friend of ours who was coming over to our house, and he was selling drugs out of our house for the last couple of weeks. But just last night, we told him that he can't sell drugs here anymore. I mean, it was word for word what his girlfriend just said. I was like, unless they're really good at corroborating their story, I was like, I think that they're telling the truth. And, and, um, and so I start to leave, and Mike's like, was that it? He's like, don't you want to come in? And um, I was like, sure, Mike, I'll come in. I was like, actually, there's something that I've been wanting to share with you guys for a while. Do you mind if we just sit and talk for a little while? He's like, yeah, come on in. And so we sit down and we start talking and I pull out this track and it's, it's on the story of Adam and Eve. And, um, and I was like, do you mind if I tell you the story of Adam and Eve? He's like, no, we'd love to hear it. And so I just start reading the story of Adam and Eve. And, and afterwards I close and I, I ask Mike, I, I ask Mike and say, um, uh, Mike, have you, ever, have you ever sinned against God? And Mike looked at me and said, no, no. Not me. I have never sinned against God. And I promise you, Tammy, like, she's sitting there in her, her chair. And she, she hears that and she perks up and she jumps up out of her chair. And she says, you liar! You liar! Your wife's in East St. Louis. We're living in sin right now! I'm like, oh, Mike, I'm sorry. I got you in trouble, man. And, uh, 
about that time we hear somebody outside yelling and is yelling, Tammy, Tammy, get your blue, 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 out of here. And Tammy walks to the door and she looks at her and she says, Love, is that you? You need to get in here and hear this. And in walks this guy. I mean, he's this big. He has to step through the door like this. And he looks at me and he looks at Mike and, and, and I, I say, Hey, love, we're having Bible study. You want to join us? And he looks at me, he's like, Mike, I was on my way to a Bible study right now. I know just seeing if you wanted to go with me. Goodbye. And he walked out the door, down the street, and was gone. (laughs) I don't know what has happened. So we, we pray together, and I asked Mike, I was like, Mike, I've got a lot of stories like this. Do you mind if I come over to your house regularly and just share some, some stories about, about God and who He is and what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And he's like, yeah, I'd love that. And so I walk home, and as I'm walking out the door, I just whew, feel peace and joy. Like joy like I have never felt in my life. I struggle with depression. My wife will tell you this. I do not know what joy is like. But that day, I experienced the joy that can only come from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. It's holy. What's the guy's name? Holy Spirit. <laughs> I was filled with the Holy Spirit and the joy of the Holy Spirit. I can't take credit for any of that. That was the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. But God gave me, and what's amazing about that, God didn't really need me to confront Mike and Tammy, did he? They had already repented. They had already put this guy out of their house. And I started to realize God orchestrated this whole thing for me, not for Mike. Because God wanted me to know what does it mean to live by faith and not by fear. And it's not this triumphant, I'm great kind of thing. It's a struggle. It's a fight. It's wrestling with God. But it's being led by the Holy Spirit. It's submitting to God's Word and surrendering to God's Word whether you want to do it or not. It's surrendering to God's Word. It's having people in the church that come along beside you and say, look, I'm going to walk with you in this. If there's there's one thing I did wrong in that whole story, it's that I didn't take Tim or I didn't take Eric to go with me. God wanted them to come with me. God always sent out His disciples two by two. He was trying to give me a partner in this. And I was sinful by it because I wanted to hide. I wanted to run. I didn't want that. But look, this is that, and I feel like God's given me this story to share, to share with people, to share with you. That when we humble ourselves and surrender ourselves to God's Word, He will bring abundant joy. We just, we just can't see it at first. Jesus said, uh, in Hebrews it says that um, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. When Jesus was crucified, he wasn't singing, Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. He was singing, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was suffering. For you and for me. He suffered. But he suffered for the joy that was set before him. He suffered for his resurrection. 
and your resurrection and my resurrection for our redemption. That was the joy of the cross, is what laid on the other side of that suffering. And God is calling you and I to enter into that same journey. To take up our cross and to follow Him. And to be willing to suffer for His sake so that His name might be great, so that His will might be done. For the joy that is set before so that others might experience the good news of redemption in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus has called you here, is to hear this message, to prepare you to go out, to take up your cross, to suffer for Jesus, so that others might hear the good news of the salvation that is in his name, so that he might be glorified, so that his will might be done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we're at this conference this week, um, that you would give us a revelation of your sovereignty. Whether that's through one of the speakers, or whether it's in a conversation that we have with friends or mentors, or whether it's just in the quietness of our own study as we're alone, as we lay ourselves down to sleep or wake up. Lord, I pray that you would give us a revelation of your sovereignty, of your glory, of your majesty. And that like Isaiah, that we would see ourselves uh, as sinners in the hands of a holy God. And to know that, Lord, that you love us, that you have atoned for our sins through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, and that you have a job for us to do. And Lord, it may not feel fulfilling to us, but that it will be fulfilling to you. Lord, help us to lay down our lives, to surrender to you, and to start taking steps of risk-taking obedience to bring glory and honor to your name. Amen. Y'all are dismissed.